That was The Smiths with the track, I Want the One I Can't Have. From the album, Meat is Murder. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, playing the finest in indie pop. And as you gather every week, I always have a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Dan But No Bacon from Chumbawamba. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight. But to get the party rolling, I think I should play your fave and mine. This is Chumbawamba and the track titled... Give the anarchist a cigarette. Bobby, 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 Bobby
There you go, rock and roll and a bit of punk. That was Chumbawamba and that was a track titled Give the Anarchist a Cigarette that came from their apparently sixth studio album titled Anarchy. Yes, this is David Esau, this is the C86 show and this week's special guest is going to be Dan Bit No Bacon because I caught up with him, I think it was in November time. Via FaceTime, there you go, modern technology. We love it. Anyway, so I've got that interview that I'm going to bring all cut up into about four sections or segments for your delight. So I'm going to play one more track and then the first part of the interview. This is going to be, I do believe, a single that came out titled Just Look At Me Now. 
which we loved. I think it features Lou on vocals. Anyway, take it away. And that's Jumbawamba with a track titled Just Look At Me Now. That came from the album Swingin' With Raymond. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. A bit later on, I will tell you how you can contact me. But before all that, I've got my first part of the interview with Dan But No Bacon from the band. And this was done via FaceTime, which was um, 
good, though the recording, I do realise, is, is not as great as sometimes it can be, but um, it's good enough for this purpose, so sometimes I'm a bit louder than Dan, but, but just for the sake, for the love of rock and roll and punk and all that kind of DIY stuff, I think it's still good, and if you just listen carefully, you'll hear everything and much, much more. Anyway, this is the first part of the interview when I asked Danbert about the early years of the band and how they formed, and this was his answer. Danbert? Your answer, please. Three the original three members, uh, me, Boff, and Midge, the original drummer, we are from Burnley, Lancashire, and we ended up going to Leeds University and not even making it through. We had a high school man uh, called Chimpy's Banana with some other guys in Burnley, but then the three of us went to Leeds, and all we did was go see bands and... Uh, you know, write songs, and so that that was the beginning of Chumbawamba in 1982, and we dropped out basically at the end of the first year. Yes, uh, and that's when we started properly. And and so Alice and Lou, who were also from Burnley, came, moved to Leeds, and we all shared this big squatted house. And basically, if you lived in the house, you were pretty much in the band. Right. Uh, and we met Dunstan in Leeds. Because of that, uh, so yeah, and you know, for probably most of the eighties, we were mostly signing on, and and we lived really cheap, <laughs> and we played gigs, but they were mostly benefit gigs, uh, and we we somehow afforded a van to travel around in, and it was probably like well, we did get a computer later, a shared computer, uh, like an ancient thing, uh, but it, we we it, it basically. It, paid for us, you know, being unemployed, paid for us to be in a band, which is what we wanted to do. And this is before the Enterprise Allowance thing. I know that came in a bit later, but uh, we kind of did that for 10 years. And, you know, I went back to school a little bit. Some people had part-time jobs and bits of work here and there. But uh, for a long time, we subsisted off unemployment. And were you aware of the kind of general scene around? Because... Because in a sweeping sort of statement, uh, in a sweeping sort of way, I put kind of indie pop down at the years of 83 to 87, which was basically the years of the Smiths. But obviously within that, there was the post-punk scene and there was all those kind of other little bands that were, well, I say little bands, but bands like, you know, Bogshed, Big Flame, Stump, who were yeah. who, who were creating quite odd sounds, some of it because of musical limitations, that they couldn't they couldn't play, you know, Layla by Eric Clapton even if, if someone gave them a million pounds. So they just made a noise which which kind of amused them enough and got them a John Peel play in a session. That only lasted a couple of years really. And and we sort of carried on and we always kind of defied that uh well you gotta sound angry. Well we were, we did sound angry in the beginning, but we realised you know, we we don't listen to music like that all that much. So we we kind of evolved, and and you know, I mean, living in Leeds, there were other bands who we played with, like uh, Wedding Present. Uh, uh, I think Girls at Our Best play came from Leeds, didn't they? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw them play, and there was a whole host of Leeds bands who, you know, some of them probably only lasted a year or two. Uh, and we'd end up playing, you know, with, uh, I'll see if I can find the list, actually. I do have an archive. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so we, 
you know, and you know, we grew up with the Beatles and and and, and then explored, you know, Frank Zappa and weird stuff and folk music and uh, so we we kind of mutated and and as uh, you know, as the eighties drew to a close, we were like touring Europe more, so being influenced by European bands as well, and and I guess in the nineties we were. Uh, you know, John Peel always played us for one, and uh, we'd get on some of those, uh, you know, Mark Radcliffe kind of shows and uh, Bill Wiley kind of thing, and 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 we we uh, basically, I guess in 1992, we decided to do it full time. So we, if we had jobs, we gave them up, and if we were in school. And we became a full-time band, uh, and we got an agent. We'd always done our own booking. Uh, yes. And then suddenly, you know, we were we were playing 100 shows a year, so we were in that world of just kind of below the radar of daytime charts, you know, on BBC. You know, we'd put a single and it'd get to, like, number 40 or whatever, or number 50. And, but we'd, we'd be, you know, we'd be invited to play on some of those more uh, eclectic BBC radio shows and, and similar. Uh, yeah. And, you know, in terms of the music press, you know, the enemy and Sounds, I don't know if Sounds were still good, Melody Maker. Uh, they, you know, they knew who we were, they interviewers and everything. They didn't necessarily like us or get what we were doing, but, you know, we were out there, we were in that, that kind of world. And I remember in the 90s we played with a lot of those bands uh, Echo Ballet and uh, we played with Oasis once at Glastonbury. You know, but I think so we kind of we kind of knew, you know, in in a it's funny being in bands and people think, oh well, you, oh you must know so and so, but you play with him at a festival and maybe say okay, you know, say alright. And uh, but the the bands we kind of bonded with were the ones we toured with. Uh, more, which is kind of natural, really. Yes, but, yeah. because most, because having done so many of these interviews, most bands have a five-year. I re, I didn't realise this quite so much. A five-year life cycle, getting together, having a couple of years, kind of doing, you know, trying to make some music, and obviously only playing to their friends, family, and anybody else that they can emotionally blackmail to go and see them live, because no one's going to want to see that band in another city. And it was kind of John Peel seemed to be this great gatekeeper that if you got played on his show, got a session, somebody in another city like Glasgow, Brighton, Norwich, Leeds, Manchester, you know, would possibly, you know, phone the band and say, do you want to come to my, you know, the Indian club night on a Wednesday, you know, and Obi Bond said, yes, obviously. So then, you know, the album would some, you know, would, would then get made. And then after that, a bit more touring. But then when the second album came along, and if anybody ever toured America, that seemed to be the death of most bands, because it was like, oh, we did America. And then, then we split up. So, but, but to sort of go for nearly 10 years, in the indie kind of political world and then sort of get to a major is a different, uh, no one else has ever done that in the history of music. So what what was those 10, those 10 years of sort of scrabbling around in a community house, how did that develop? Because you were bringing albums out and yet you didn't want to kill yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, we, we uh, you know, we, I mean, the first album was 1986, the first EP, 1985, which John Peel, uh, he had his festive 50 and it got to number six in his festive 50, the first single, 
yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, when I was in grammar school or whatever in Burnley, and I'd go home and every, you know, when he had five shows a week or whatever, I'd listen every night and we'd hear all the obscure and punk stuff he was playing and a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, and and it, so it was our dream really to like once we started putting records out and realised that it wasn't rocket science and that we had some people in the band who were quite savvy in terms of sound, you know, and uh, and we found a studio uh, just outside of Leeds called Woodlands where we, I think apart from one 12-inch uh, record, we recorded everything there. And Neil, the engineer, eventually became the bass player of Trumbon, but much later on. But, uh, he was in a band called The Donkeys, who, who had a kind of a hit punk record in the late 70s. Uh, and so, so yeah, we, we uh, you know, we just kind of lived go play and put out the next record and, and it, it, it just gradually built up you know so as a basic rule of thumb we saw you know we'd bring out the next album and it'd sell twice as many as the previous one and it just built up gradually like that and then uh so we had our own label uh and then we were with southern uh the distributors crash they were the uh and they were kind of like a, a smaller indie label uh, out of London, and then uh, we were on One Little Indian, who were like a bigger indie label, and Derek, the guy who set that up, uh, was in a band called Flux of Pink Indians, who we toured with in, back in the punk days, and we toured with Björk's band, Kuko, uh, the Icelandic band. We'd all toured together, and uh, he set this label up, and uh, it was pretty established when we joined in, And, and and they were in that indie pop world, uh, especially with Björk. Uh, so, you know, we'd play some of the festivals in England and uh, we'd play with some of those bands. And, uh, and it, it, it was just a, like a really gradual thing over years, really, uh, uh, that we, we kind of built up... Uh, following you know we'd play shows and we'd get like you know 500 a thousand people there some of the bigger ones around england and europe and we did come to the us but uh we did a couple of tours here which were great fun we made friends here but we didn't like make any impact really and then basically what happened uh, in 1997 i guess uh, or in late 1996, we were doing, it was the third album for One Little Indian. Uh, and unbeknown to us, you know, they'd, they'd actually said, oh, you should try using a producer, you know, because it'll help you sell records, blah, blah, blah. So we, we were like, okay, well, we'll try it. And they'd booked this studio in London or whatever, and we were out, all set to go. And then uh, it was supposed to start on the Monday, and then Friday, like, 6.30 on Friday, we got a call saying, oh, it's cancelled, the, the session's cancelled. And we're like, wow, what's going on? And basically, they, they were in dire financial straits. I guess they hadn't paid Björk's royalties and they'd mounted up over a few years to hundreds of thousands of quid and suddenly people had called it in. Uh, and basically, they, uh, I mean, they survived and Björk's still with them, I think, but... Uh, 
they basically sacked half the workers and half the bands around the list of the bands that was going to be sacked. But we kind of walked anyway because we had a good contract. Our management were very savvy. And we finished that album on our own. You know, I went back to plastering, which I hadn't done for years, for a couple of months. Uh, during that time, so we had so by you know spring the next year we had this finished album, but we didn't have a label, and our management started passing it around, and all of a sudden there was all this hype because they were they were pretty well connected. They managed like Hawkwind and uh, Motorhead and Girl School and those kind of bands, and the others <laughs> kind of idiosyncratic, but. Uh, uh, and and then you know they were older and they knew people in the business or whatever and they passed the CD around and suddenly there was all this hype about this one song on it and like you know I dealt with the publishing for the band and our publisher guy called me and he said oh Danda Danda congratulations you've got a hit record and I'm going what and you know it hadn't even come out and and I don't know it just hit the right time at the right moment that song and. Suddenly there's like a bidding war of major labels chasing us around, showing up at shows we're playing in Europe with like boxes of champagne and whatnot to try and sign us, you know. So, and in the end we thought, and we labored long and hard band meetings about whether we should go with a major label. And uh, in the end we just said, uh, well, yeah, let's, you know, we've done everything else. Small India, our label, a bigger India. We'll do it, and we'll, you know, we'll probably last a year. We'll have a really good time, and then they'll dump us. And that is what happened. But it lasted a bit longer than a year. It probably lasted like three, three or four years. There you go. That's the first part of my interview with Dan, but no bacon from Chumbawamba. Still more of that to come. But I think we should play some music. This is going to be a track titled, he says, looking down, Jesus in Vegas. That came from the album What You See Is What You Get, which is the ninth studio album by Chumbawamba. I hope you're making um, notes because I will test you at the end. Anyway, take it away, Chumbawamba. Call me on my cellular.
Blimey, that was an abrupt end. Anyway, that is Chumbawamba, the track titled Jesus in Vegas. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. And also, um, I'll be in podcasting and archiving all the previous shows. And I think there's probably about 150 to 200 that always feature a special um, guest artist. And you can find that on Spotify. Um, Mixcloud and also iTunes. Just go to C86 Show. It will be there and it will change your life. Anyway, this is the next part of my interview with Dan, but no bacon, where I was talking about that interesting period where they signed with EMI. And um, the question or the point that I was making as I led up to that was that they'd made albums before that, saying how awful EMI were. So um, it was an interesting moment, and this was Dambert's um, reply. Dambert, take it away. Yeah, we, we alienated some of our hardcore fans over that. I mean, yeah, you know, we in the 80s, we were on a, a, a compilation album, which was like, uh, what was it called? Fuck EMI, I think it was called. And it basically, you know, in the 80s, EMI was Thorn EMI, and Thorn EMI were electronics and weapons. And we're like, so, you know, and like, I'd, you know, I'd written essays and pamphlets about this, you know, record company were also a military arms death merchant. And uh, so, you know, and we, even we were like, New Model Army played in Leeds and we leafleted outside and uh, Justin came out and we were really pissed off. We didn't really know him then. Anyway, uh, we became friends with them later because we shared a rehearsal space in Brampton. But uh, it was kind of funny. We were a bit, you know, self-righteous in the 80s. But I mean, so when it came around to like, ooh, do we sign with EMI? uh, They no longer were a weapons company, and that probably is why we could sign with them and feel okay about it. They were a big corporation. Uh, we signed with EMI in Germany and Universal in America. And uh, so, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of our punk fans just thought we'd sold out. And uh, uh, we we just thought, well, look, let's see, you know, what we can do with this. We're suddenly given this much, much bigger platform. And we might, like, you know, make total complete fools of ourselves and shoot ourselves in the foot or whatever, but we're going to see what we can do with it. Yes. And, and we did. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting that, you know, we were signed with EMI in Germany. EMI UK knew about us. They knew our politics and they didn't want anything to do with us. And it was so funny that once EMI Germany signed us, the UK had to take orders from Germany because once the song started, once they started putting the song out there and they realised it was going to be like a huge hit or whatever, EMI UK had to get on board. And of course we got in trouble with them because of the little John Prescott thing. Uh, they were going, oh, you've got to apologise to Mrs Prescott. And we're like, no way, we meant it, you know, and we didn't, you know. Yes. And I think they sent flowers to her and said, you know, tried to distance themselves from us. But, you know, once you start doing that kind of thing, and we did it in America on the David Letterman show, you know, we changed lyrics to the song, you very quickly realize uh, that, and they do, the establishment, the mainstream media, whatever, that you're not playing by the rules. So they, they don't invite you back. They're just like, okay, 
you've done that, you've burnt all your bridges, and you know you're not coming back because yes. you're too radical. You you're messing, uh, and it's you're supposed to play by the rules, and you're supposed to, you know, like Bono, you know, extreme example is Pally Pally with George W. Bush, and we we were never like that. <laughs> but it's yes, I, but it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously that album came out in '97, so everyone was getting very excited about New Labour. So I suppose, um, yeah, it was kind of an exciting period in a bizarre sort of way after years of um, being under a conservative government. But obviously, from then, actually, one thing yeah, that always been, gets. I was going Sorry, to say, one, one thing that often trips people up that I've also noticed um, has been kind of the, the admin and the publishing. Did you, as a band, manage to navigate that better than most people or did it just like, oh, well, that's the music industry, you just get... No, I think we did. Just because we had, our management were really... You know, they'd been in the business for about 20 years at least when we came along. And they recognised that we had an appeal... You know, this is before Tug Thumper did something. Because uh, we were getting, like, you know, like I said, 100,000 uh, people coming to a show at, at Brixton Academy or wherever it was, or Camden, that place in Camden. Uh, and uh, so they, they they were just really savvy. And, they, you know, they, you know, I mean, they go and find out a lawyer when a contract comes along, you know, for publishing or, or a record contract. And they made sure that it was you know uh basically so it, it, you know i mean in the old days the beatles it was 10 percent for the beatles and 90 percent for the record company for us it was probably the best you could get 80 percent for the band and 20 percent for the rest you know the publishing company yes and that's probably about as good as it gets uh so and you know we when when that happened to us we'd been a band for 15 years so we were we were like older and wiser and more cynical of the machine and to be on the inside of it for a short time it's pretty fascinating really to see how it works some of the things we were asked to do uh and so no we're not doing that or, or like i said you know we'd be on a mainstream like you know we're on david letterman in america and uh, so we we changed the song, uh, and we we'd been playing around Europe before, and we had a part in the set where we'd ask the audience to sing a song, and probably for a couple of years they'd been singing this chant in Denmark and Germany, Free Mumia Abu Jamal, who was uh, a teenager uh, arrested in Philadelphia for allegedly killing a cop, uh, and the cops in Philadelphia notoriously racist. Uh, during that time, you know, blew up a house even uh, where black activists were working. Uh, and, they were, you know, the the court case was like an absolute sham, the evidence, whatever. So there was this whole campaign to put him or whatever. And so we sang it on David Letterman, you know, not during, she rehearsed it and then we just sang it straight. And then when they actually recorded it, we, we did it. And suddenly, you know, after we, the last note of the song fades away, this absolute kick in the TV studio, the producer, and you can't do that, you can't do that, you know. Uh, we're not going to show it, we're not going to show it. And they, they record it and it goes out about four hours later. And I mean, to their credit, they did broadcast it, but they got complaints from the like police union in America. We got blacklisted and everything. Yes. Uh, and uh, I 
what was your original question on this? I, I had a point I was going towards. I think uh, it was to do with the, you know, the basically having the publishing and the admin, so you have that control because obviously that's the one thing or one of the many things that can trip a band up. Yeah, yeah, I, I. I so yeah, so like I said, we were we were we were lucky to have people who knew what they were doing when when that was sorted out, and and because we were older and wiser, we weren't as easily fooled. You know, we we, you know, we played some radio festivals in America. I don't know if you remember the band Hanson, Three Brothers, Teenage yes. Brothers, and they had a song Mbop. Yes. And and we we were like backstage with them, and and then their manager came in or whatever the tour manager, and he, he was like. <laughs> He was just like ruling them with an iron rod, and you just thought these poor bodies—they're they're in this like machine. They're spending all this money that they think they don't even know they're spending it. You know, a lot of those bands, or you know, the limo comes to pick you up from the airport or whatever, and they don't realize it's their money. You know, that they're spending that the record company front the money, but they claim it back from the sales. So we were pretty savvy in that way as well that we didn't. We didn't get uh, deluded into like really ridiculous uh, publicity stunts, which you know, which the whole celebrity media is based upon. You know, so and so is wearing this dress at this red carpet event. You know, uh, and it's so you 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 know, and a lot of those uh, musicians, pop stars, or whatever, very quickly go bankrupt because. They just burn through all the money and more, and then they can never pay it back. And that's the second part of my interview with Dan, but no bacon. This, um, yes, on this special, and um, like I said a bit earlier, uh, this was a re uh, recording we did via FaceTime, and he was the other side of America. So the quality isn't amazing. I think he was on his mobile phone as well. So it was even doubly more exciting, but um, I'm probably a bit more louder in the mix than he is. But never mind, it doesn't matter. You can still hear what he's saying, and he's got a lot to say. Anyway, I'll give you, yes, um, my contact details if you so wish to contact me a bit later on. But I think we should um, just keep that suspense going a little bit longer. But I think we should play another track from the album Anarchy. This is Mouthful of Shit.
Delightful sing-along songs from Chumbawamba. That is a mouthful of shit. From the album Anarchy, this is David Eastall. The C86 Show, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. And also all the shows, the archive is there um, on Spotify, iTunes and Mixcloud. Did I just say that? I don't know. It's an age thing. I'm probably repeating myself. Anyway, just go to C86 Show on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud. You'll find them and you'll just go wow I've been busy but anyway it's all a label of love now this is going to be the third part of my interview with Danbert where I was asking him what happened when that royalty check landed on their doorstep after a tub thumping and this was his reply did it and this was the point I was trying to make did it change the dynamic did it change them as people Danbert give us the news roughly um, a year to 18 months behind so we were like totally in the public eye and the money still hadn't quite come or whatever. And then it did, like you say, and, it, and it's, yeah, it's just mind-blowing because, like I said, we'd been a band for 15 years. We had made a little bit of money. We, we you know, full-time touring, none of us had children or anything. And full-time, by that, I mean, like, 100, 120 shows a year. We kind of made a little money, you know, but not a huge amount, but it was, like, enough to live on and pay the rent because we're not even home most of the time, but we still need to rent somewhere. Uh, but then suddenly it just went through the roof, obviously. Uh, you know, like it, it was like a hit in, I don't know, 23 countries or whatever it was. It very much at the same time. And, uh, you know, we were on that for like, uh, I think we were like pretty much on the road for two years once that song album came out. And then it's like, we got to stop, you know, have a little break. And, and, that's when the money was starting to come in and it's like, oh shit, you know, 
maybe I could buy a house or whatever, which I've never been able to do, which, you know, most of us did. Uh, you know, not not mansions, not like mansions, but like, you know, a decent house in Leeds. Uh, and, and then it's like, well, where do we go now? So like, well, we'll, we'll you know, think about doing the next album. And, uh, and, uh, Oh, okay, yeah. So we're all in our uh, early mid thirties, and there's three women in the band. And basically, during that downtime after Tub Thumper, their biological body clocks were ticking. And uh, you know, uh, two of the women said, "Well, look, you know, I want to have children." There was one couple in the band, and Liv and Harry, and they had the first baby in 2000. 1999, I guess. And then in the next three years, from there being no children in the band, there was eight, including my twins. Uh, and that just totally changed everything. You know, we were like, well, well, we can't go on tour all year. And, uh, you know, like, you know, when my twins were born, I had five months off. And we actually brought in a couple of people to fill in for, you know, for for Lou and Alice when they were pregnant uh, to be in the band, you know. Uh, and and I don't know, you know, it, it, suddenly we were uh, not millionaires or anything, but because the money that came in was split ten ways, and this is probably the crucial point of why we could carry on and why we didn't fall out over money. From the very beginning, we always split. If you were, you know, if you were there writing the songs, if you were there touring the album, then you got an equal split of whatever money what there was, and an equal share on the publishing. And we did that throughout. And so when you know that huge amount of money came in, it was split between ten people, eight people in the band, and the two management people. So we all got a tenth, which uh, still a lot of money from that one song. And that one song, you know, generated ninety five plus percent of any publishing money. Yes. Uh but that you know, that meant that we were uh there was no arguments about money. Now the classic one where there was is Oasis. Because Noel Gallagher wrote all the songs and claimed all the publishing and his brother, Liam, was like, Shit, my brother's getting four times the amount of money I'm getting and that, you know, Everyone knows the histrionics that went on between them two, and it, a lot of it was down to that basic financial thing of, oh, well, this person's getting way more than everybody else. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know that... that crucial. Well, I think with, with kind of hindsight, most people realise you've just got to have that proper conversation, whereas, you know, obviously the famous one is also the Smiths, where two of the members thought they were having a sort of an equal share and the other two said, well, no, you, you, you're the kind of backing band. And they were like, well, we're more than just that. But it's like, well, no, you're not. So obviously that was going to be the death. So then, so then obviously when you went, wow, this is great, but then you have babies and all that dynamic. When you made that particular album, which is the one with the dog on the front, Front. Um, oh yeah. And did that? Did you? Did you? 
did you still have the energy and the enthusiasm or was that quite a slog? Because because from what you were saying, you know, there was a sort of dynamic within the band that was was probably touched on the sort of Fleetwood Mac story of sort of relationships and dynamics and then children yeah. came along. And obviously that particular album, which was Tub Thumper, was the one that kind of was like your rumours. And then you had to make the next one, which is a bit like Tusk. And I just, well, I never thought of this before, by the way. Yeah, so but, there was a dynamic there. I mean, like I said, we, we yeah, people who started having babies and, we thought, well, we, you know, we have this money, we can do things differently. Like, you know, we can spend proper money on a video, a music video, instead of like doing it on the cheap or whatever. And, uh, but uh, we still, true to our kind of creative ethos was, which is based on the Beatles, basically, on the idea that every Beatles album, there's a significant change in the sound from you know, all the way through. And we always tried to do that with our albums. So like, right, what we're doing in the next album, we want to make it different. And it, so it's like 23, WYSIWYG, it's like 23 song bits, I think, if I remember correctly. And it's one of my favorite Chumbawamba albums, as it happens. Uh, and it's very pop in a lot of ways, but, uh, you know, we sent it to the record company in Germany and the one in America, and they were like, oh. they, they, didn't, they didn't know how to deal with it. And even though there's a couple of pop songs on there that they tried sending to radio, they just couldn't, uh, they didn't get where we were coming from at all. And all they wanted was a repeat of the, you know, uh, a carbon copy of Tub Thumping. They just wanted songs like that. And there's, I don't know, it's probably a, a matter of taste, but there's a couple of songs on there which have something similar, but we didn't, we thought, right, we're not just going to write 12 copies of Tub Thumping. We're just going to do what we want to do, and uh, we did. And it, it's a tall pop album, but they just couldn't they couldn't market it for some reason. And it's so funny. We we somebody sent like after that came out, somebody sent us like a an American record industry business magazine, and they interviewed you know our guy at the record company Universal, and you know they were profiling him, saying oh, he's done all these great things, and and then there's the question there: What about Trump offer? You, they went from selling four million albums with Tub Thumping to six thousand with WYSIWYG in America. Surely that's got to be in the Guinness Book of Records for the worst uh, decline. Uh, but it, yeah, they—I don't know. You know, they pressed up a hundred thousand and they didn't even sell them all. <laughs> yes. So uh, were you get? Uh, maybe was... it was partly because we were not on the road touring it, but they could, you know. It's just the way the industry, you know, and we'd also started burning our bridges, so I think, uh, with politics, you know. Uh, so we weren't as, like, well, we weren't like a novelty anymore. Ooh, this quaint, you know, anarchist band. What does anarchy mean? You know, when Tub Thumping came out, a lot of the TV stations and radios, oh, well, what, what's anarchism? What's that about? But by the time the next album came out, you know, we we kind of muckied our ticket. Yes, but but bizarrely, you did seem to have a phenomenal stamina and longevity because because still, you know, you made that album, and most people would have probably, I mean, it probably cost cost a lot of money, and they probably didn't get that much money back. But then you kept making more albums, which is quite boggling because because there must have been a dynamic within the band, oh, yeah. a, a dynamic as well within. Yeah. I think you know the the. Because we'd all, you know, in the beginning, the original 
six members or whatever from like the second year of his, our existence. We'd all shared a house and we'd, so that meant when we were on the road, we knew about each other's, you know, things which upset each other. And, you know, we did have fights and we did upset each other, but in the end, we, we knew how to get on, you know, because we, you know, uh, as friends, as people, and we're still all friends. You know, when I go back to England, I go see everyone, and we like, we all have teenagers now. They're all pretty much teenagers, and uh, and uh, and I I don't think a lot of bands have that. You know, I was in Chumwong for 22 years. That's a huge chunk of my life, and you know, the acoustic kind of folk element carried on for another I think, almost eight years. So until Band thirty years and I don't know albums maybe. And that was the third segment section of the interview with Dan but No Bacon from Chumbawamba, reminiscing about the longevity of the band, which was very impressive. Thirty years and they didn't kill each other. Well done. Anyway, I think we'll have a bit more music and then the last part of the interview. This is gonna be um I think titled This Girl, I know. Check me out. Girl who stayed upstairs 
Indeed, more acoustic-y vibes. From Chumbawamba, that was a track titled This Girl, and that was the open, opening song on the album Swing In with Raymond. Obviously, I love that album because I played two tracks on that now. Anyway, this is going to be the fourth part of my interview with Dan But No Bacon, where we were talking about the longevity of the band, as you do, and also um, that moment when, to quote Jim Morrison, you call it will say this is the end and um, I was wondering if Chumbawamba also had one of those moments where was, they all sat down and said shall we just not bother anymore so this is it Dambert give us the news uh, yeah we did we did so you know we uh, we made an album called Readiness in what year, 2003 and it used you know we'd done an acapella album way back so we had we always had this folk element, and we ready-made sampled old old folk records and put them into like modern dance music, uh, and uh, and you know we were invited to like the Cambridge Folk Festival and things like that, and we got invited to some of these folk festivals, and they don't it happened a couple of times where they'd only heard the a cappella album, bizarrely, <laughs> and we show up like with electric guitars and a full band, and it's like oh. Uh, and so we do like more of the a cappella songs or whatever on spur of the moment. But, and then we actually started, the agents started getting invites specifically for like the full a cappella kind of really uh, paired back version. And we said, oh, well, yeah, you know, the, so like in the band there were like three really good singers and two the trumpet player. And, and then there was like the angry shouties theatrical people like me and Dunes and Alice. And we said, yeah, go do the folk thing. And and then, it, you know, we did another album after that. Uh, um, and this was like 2004. And we said, right, you know, you know, we're used, you know, the children are a bit older and we'll make an album. We'll put it out. We'll go do a tour of Europe and a tour of England and and have a lot of fun. And, and that probably will be, you know, where do we go after that? We don't know. And, and, and that we did that, you know, and the tours were only like two weeks long, but it, it seemed an incredibly long time when you're away from your children, if you've been... Anyway, but... Uh, and it, it just was kind of like a natural break after that. And we, we had some band meetings and one thing and another, and it was like, yeah, we should just, you know, the electric band, we've made 11 albums or whatever. We've done pretty much everything beyond, way beyond what we ever thought we could achieve. Uh, and the folk element wanted to carry on, so we said, yeah, yeah, you carry on. And So that's when I stopped and me, Dunstan Alice, in 2004. Uh, and we do a, like a 30th reunion show in Leeds, all of us, in 2012. Yes. Uh, and, of course, you know, the history of the band and the, all the publishing stuff and business stuff and still goes on. We've just had a huge thing in Australia where uh, a coal mining 
president is standing for election and he's he's used to something on his billboards and on his campaign thing and so we get the you know Australian lawyers BMI publishing lawyers to tell him to take it down and it goes back and forwards and uh, you know stuff like that comes up that's happened a few times you know right wing politicians like uh, I think Nigel Farrar tried to use it in England at one point and we just make a stand about it and they're, they're forced to uh, stop doing it Yes, and how did because obviously after doing you know working on other la- well being with other labels like you said, Southern and uh, One Little Indian and EMI, you then set up your own record label, which is always a brave thing and often something that young people yeah. do. How did that develop and and work out? Because often there's a lot more to it than than one believes, you know. Because there's there's some kind of classic indie labels like Sarah Records and things like that, but. Having spoke to the members of you know, the two people who set that up, you know, they realise it is quite a lot of work, and after a while, you just think, "Can we just knock this on the head?" I just wondered how mutt, you know, records went. We, well, we did that in, uh, uh, I guess, in the eighties. We had our own label, and we put stuff out by other people, maybe in the nineties as well. Uh, Agit Prop, the original Chumbawamba label, and basically we. Uh, so he, any, anyone can say, oh, I mean, I do it now. I, I, I put CDs out here in America and I say I'm a record label, but it's just me. And it's just so I can put a little thing and a logo on the record or whatever. But uh, to be a record label, to bring out other people's music, that is when it becomes a huge uh, commitment. And, you know, it might be music you totally love, but it's just it's like throwing money down a hole because... There's no guarantee anyone's going to buy it, especially these days now. I don't know how a lot of bands and record companies even exist because it's so different to the pre-internet age when we started. Uh, but then, yeah, I think the the post-EMI uh, Universal albums, we had our own kind of label again, but it, we, we were just putting out our, our uh, albums, really. Yes. But yeah, when we did, we put out an album by Patron Acid and Credit to the Nation, uh, like a couple of compilation albums in the early 90s. And it, it is, it's like, oh, well, you're taking on a whole another basket of eggs, really, with every different band you sign. Uh, and it's a great idea, but it, it takes someone really special who has the dedication and the kind of knowledge and skill to make that work so you know some of the classic indie labels that you got to admire the, yes. the sort of work that goes into it but see, a lot of it is a labor of love and there's no guarantee of any kind of even breaking even never mind making a living from it well i think it's brave and it normally ends in tears so how does it feel because you're obviously still making music and it's it's you know you've gone to you into your billy bragg kind of um world of sort of just keeping it yourself in a guitar does that still because obviously that's where you started wasn't it being a uh, yeah i i kind of did that alongside chumbawamba in the early uh, days and then chumbawamba just eclipsed everything I always still kind of wrote songs, uh, and some, you know, became Chumbawamba songs, and some didn't. And and then, so when it when it was done, when in two thousand four, when I, I my intention was to write a book, I'd been writing a blog on the Chumbawamba website, 
And it was about it was about pushing that. It was like history, really, on current affairs. Uh, and uh, that was me intention. And it, like you know, we had money. I could stay at home and write and look after the children and Laura and the partner could go do a postgraduate degree course or whatever. Uh, and I was doing that, but it, it, it basically <laughs> stuff was changing so fast. You know, the Iraq War and everything else and. It was like a swamp. I just my brain couldn't compute all the information, and and then somebody asked me, "Oh, damn it, come play a show in Derbyshire, solo show." And I'm like, mm. and I thought, okay. And that week before the show, I wrote like five songs, basically, which were gleaned from this this semi-abandoned current affairs book, uh, and then became the basis of. The first kind of solo record, first Chumbo one that I put out, which came out in 2007. Right. Workshop records in America, uh, produced by John Langford, you know, Mekon. Uh, My God, John Langford's produced yeah. everybody, hasn't he, really? He has, yeah. And like, you know, we they were a bit older than us, Mekon, so when they lived in Leeds, but we, we did get to know them and we played with them, you know, initially called Minus Benefits in the 80s and then. We'd, our paths would keep crossing over the years, so he, they became great friends of ours. And uh, uh, so yeah, when when I thought, oh, I should record these songs, I don't know what. I don't know if I'd just played with him in London or something. I said, oh, I want to make a record, and he said, oh, you got to come to Chicago. I'll get you a band together, and he did. And we made this album, and it came out, and it was great. Yes. Uh, and so I've done another two albums since then. Well, three actually. I've just redone one of them completely. And and having spent you know your life in in sort of well music and art. I mean, what what was the you know because after the last you know what would you just say to your eighteen year old self? Now obviously it's a bit tricky because does that mean now looking back or, or whatever? But you know what I just suppose it's those kind of the key points that you think bloody hell you know the the five or or you know the bullet points that you think God. What I would say to an eighteen-year-old, <laughs> it's just like what what are the top things that you sort of wish you'd known that you didn't know back then uh, would have helped. It's hard to say. I don't really look back with regrets. I mean, you know, there's things I've done in my life that you know I'm not super proud of or whatever, or, or chances I think I might miss. Usually, uh, but it, it's funny, you know. M my son actually he's just gone to the college his mom went to evergreen to do art which is so cool and they have this thing in america i, I don't i didn't you know even though i teach in high school i didn't quite get it they call it senioritis so you're in your senior year but basically your your teenage brain is just you know and the you know the science on the teenage brain in the last 20 years is amazing in itself because it's it's basically the your brain from age, I don't know, 14, 15, to even into your mid-20s, changes more than your body does. Uh, the actual biological changes, physical changes to your brain. You know, you're going through this period of becoming your own person, basically, and, and you're open to all these things. And, you know, particularly with boys, uh, taking huge risks with your safety of your own life. You know, my son rolled his car. <laughs> He walked out with barely a scratch, but uh, hor horrifying to parents, you know, as a parent. 
uh, and 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 it, so Carson, he, you know, he was in senior year in high school, and he really didn't want to be in school, and he's kind of like, not that I'm cared about his grades, but it, you know, the, the, he didn't have the same peer group that I have. You know, we had when I was this age, punk rock came along, and and I find like three new friends or whatever, and we became a band and we supported each other. And and if that carried on into Chumbawamba, you know, I, I couldn't, I probably wouldn't, I'd probably be a university professor if I hadn't have had music, if punk rock hadn't have changed my life. Uh, and, you know, I hope for my son's sake, and it seems to be so far, he's doing well, finding new friends who, who want to make art like he does. Uh, and that, that, is the key thing and it, there's no way to guarantee finding that but if you can find your peer group who you know they, they inspire you and you inspire them and you find this connection that is the greatest thing really uh to have in life i think you know and like you know chumbawamba where uh you know like 30, nearly 40 years down the line and we're still all connected, you know, in spirit and in person when we see each other. Yes. Uh, and and it just made me realise, you know, my son going through that, it just made me realise how kind of lucky I was, really. Because I see some of my students who, you know, and theatre is a great thing for, for bringing that, you know, for giving something to a, a teenager, in a sense or helping them find it in themselves. But yeah, there is something inside me that is meaningful and, and gives me a way to express something of who I am and, who, and that I'm changing and I'm becoming somebody else. And, uh, and I think that's what art does, you know. That's why we have it. That's why we evolved it. And that's my last part of the interview with Dan But No Bacon, one-time member of Chumbawamba and now a solo artist. If you want to know any more information, he does have a website. Just Google Dan But No Bacon. And I'm sure you'll be able to navigate yourself there. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Contactable via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. But anyway, I'll leave you with a little bit more music. This is going to be Behave. Have a great week. Shallow and cheap with a hole in the middle.